Today's podcast is an emotional but inspirational conversation because of the mission of my friend Eileen Davidson to help others. Her husband, Michael Davidson, was a lieutenant with the FDNY and made the ultimate sacrifice on March 23, 2018, losing his life during a horrific fire that happened in Harlem. Eileen and her family have been through so much, not only losing her husband and father to her four kids, but Eileen has also gone through some difficult health challenges in her life. Despite the obstacles, Eileen has channeled grief and tragedy into something so wonderful, helping other families. Please welcome my guest today, Eileen Davidson, to the Janice Dean Podcast. Eileen Davidson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hi, Janice. Thank you for having me. So we uh, lived in the same neighborhood for many years uh, on Long Island. Uh, I knew of your family because, well, my husband's a firefighter. So I think we all know of each other uh, that are married to people who have jobs like our husbands Um, and Something tragic happened several years ago, and we all knew about it. And can you talk about your husband and what what happened on that terrible day? Yes. So Michael was a second-generation firefighter. Um, My father-in-law, Bobby, served actually in the same house that Michael served in, uh, the Harlem Hilton, Engine 69, Ladder 28. (laughs) And um, Michael loved his job so deeply. Um, He was incredibly passionate about it. He was driven, he was focused. Um, Michael is not somebody who liked necessarily being um, a leader, but it was in his nature to lead. And I think that was across the board in his life, um, but especially at the fire department. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I knew my husband was a good firefighter, um, but it was at the events, as you know, when you go in for the the Christmas party or the the dance, um, you know, dinner dances, you see the the young firemen, the way they looked up to him and shaking my hands like, oh, Mrs. Davidson, it's so nice to meet you. Um, You know, I got to see really what an incredible impact Michael had on his peers, on his colleagues, on his guys in in the firehouse. Um, You know, that night it was, as they thought, you know, a regular fire that they'd been to many times. Michael had 15 years on the job and he unfortunately um, ran out of oxygen while battling the fire. And um, unfortunately, he did not make it out of the building that night. Mm. Listen, as a spouse of a firefighter, we always know that this is a possibility, right? I mean, when you meet them and you you get past the fact that they're a hero um, and you get married, you walk down the aisle and you have children you know, you, you pray that they're going to be okay, but they're in a profession where this is a, always a possibility. So did, were you prepared? You, you can never be prepared for the phone call. But did you think about it? Because I think about it, you know, every day, uh, you know, Sean right now is is approaching retirement. So he's not not in the field like he used to be. But I remember what it was like when he would go on his tour. And, and sometimes I would think, you know, I, 
I might not see him again. You know, I, I think it's always in the back of your mind. Yes, I think, you know, you know, just as well as I do, in order to be a firefighter's wife, it's almost like you have to compartmentalize that, right? You cannot, every time they go out the door, if I was preoccupied with that, I mean, we'd never make it the, mm. the way our schedule is. And with that being said, you know, you're absolutely right. It is always in the back of your mind. And I remember when um, Michael and I first got together and I was at our first fire department, you know, Christmas party up at the, at the firehouse and Michael was actually working, you know, uh, the younger guys would, would take the lead with that with, you know, we were yet to have children. So um, he was working. I watched him get on the rig and I must've turned a shade of white (laughs) that, um, very quickly, I found myself surrounded by veteran wives, their hands on my shoulder, mm. going to be okay. And that was the first time I really had that dance with the reality of what our men do. And, um, you know, it's overwhelming when you really think about the complexities of the job the potential outcomes. And with all that being said, you know, I never envisioned being in the seat I'm in now. And there are days I'd, I'd be lying if I said there were mornings I wake up that, you know, I roll over and I'm like, okay, this, this did really happen. Um, it's been such a whirlwind. And I think part of that was having, you know, four young children when he passed, um, you know, it's, it's an incredibly overwhelming feeling. It does not ever go away. It does change. It does morph. Um, but it's, it's challenging still to this day. And we're, we're almost six years later. Mm. And I remember when we talked, that grief is not something we talk enough about. That's you feel that way, right? I do very much so. I think it's very largely avoided and as a result, I think really misunderstood. Tell me about that. How do we get better about talking about grief? You know, I think the first part of it is accepting that nothing about grief is comfortable. <laughs> it's all incredibly uncomfortable. Um, it will never not be uncomfortable. And I think we have to accept that fact, first and foremost, that you're going to be sitting in these mucky waters that you will never really truly be comfortable in. Um, That's the first piece. And I think the second piece is, and I can only speak to, you know, my life experience and even just reflecting on how I handled grief um, and maybe spoke to others in their time of grief. And I think truly as a society, we always feel as though we have to say something. You know, it's, um, I'm so sorry for your loss and God doesn't give us things that we can't handle. And, um, you know, you're going to get through this and tomorrow's going to be okay. And, think about all the life you have left to live. And those words come with the greatest of intentions. They're said with care, they're said with love, but 
the truth is when your entire world has shattered and you're standing there lost and confused and shocked and hopeless because it feels so incredibly hopeless in the beginning. Those words don't serve us grievers. And I am guilty myself of saying all of those things to people that I loved who I wanted to protect from the sadness they were feeling and their loss. And so I don't judge those things that are said. I'm not saying that people are necessarily wrong. I think it's just a matter of this level of discomfort where nobody really knows what to do. Nobody really knows what to say. And the best advice I could give to people who are wanting to support a griever um, is it's not about what you say. It's really just about what you do and just showing up, whether it's with a bag of groceries, their favorite coffee order, a hot meal that is home cooked or picked up, you know, and just actually doing is what grievers need. And, you know, that, that saying of, um, or I guess not the saying, but the question of asking somebody, what can I do for you? Or reach out to me and let me know what I can do for you. I'm here for you. Is again, it's said with such great intent, but it almost becomes for somebody who is suffocating in grief, it almost becomes something else that we have to think about. Mm. And it becomes a task for us. Well, what do I need done? Gosh, I need my laundry. I need my bathrooms cleaned. I need the kids' lunches made. I, I need so many things. And I am so overwhelmed in my grief and in my pain and in my sadness that I can't even wrap my head around, you know, the next two hours, forget about what I need two days from now. So I re really do think it's not what we say it's what we do and just showing up. And sometimes that means showing up and just like wiping down the kitchen counters after you drop off a meal um, and just doing the little things, the small things that we probably didn't even think to do because we're walking around in this, this cloud, you know, this fogginess and this um, terrible heaviness. Right. I think that is such an important message uh, because and even, you know, picking up the phone during that time is difficult. Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. So, you know, we lost Sean's uh, parents a few years ago. And the w most wonderful thing that something someone did for us was indeed what you just said. That was dropping off a meal. And I couldn't even tell you who it was, but I know it was within the firefighter community and it was in our neighborhood, which you know so well. That gesture alone like brought tears to my eyes because I didn't need to do anything. I didn't need to talk to anyone or validate, you know, their um them saying that they felt bad for me. It was just it was just a beautiful moment and I thank you so much for saying that because I think as a society, we need to think about that more, not about ourselves, but the person that's going through it. Absolutely. And I do think, again, it's 
it really comes down to um, that being okay with being uncomfortable. You know, I think um, for people like I'm so uncomfortable going to this house and just dropping this meal because it's not something I would normally do. Yeah. And maybe they want it or maybe they do want it. But just like you said, just making the gesture can literally turn the day around mm -hmm. for somebody in that, that dark place or that sad place. And I think the just having someone to clean up, to come in and clean up a kitchen or take the responsibilities of getting the children back and forth to school or whatever. And it doesn't have to be, I, I think when people think about you months or even years afterwards, you know, those are the, those are the true friends because they, they still know that you're going through grief. Yes. And that's another really intricate part of grief that I didn't truly understand until I was in it myself is Grief does not end. There is no, you know, specific, um, you know, certain number of stages of grief. There's no specific timeline of, you know, okay, I'll wake up a year from now and I'm going to feel better. You know, um, I don't feel better. I feel different, but I don't necessarily feel better. Um, you just learn how to carry the weight of it all. And with that said, you know, coming up on the six year anniversary of, of my husband's passing, of Michael's passing, you know, things are still heavy for me. And I don't know that they'll ever not be heavy. And I think, you know, um, another really important thing that I've learned is there are so many secondary losses in grief that are relevant to exactly what you're saying in terms of people understanding the longevity of it. You know, and what I mean by that is, you know, for one, I had to give up my career. Um, I was a teacher and I loved my job very much. There's not many things I love more than being in a classroom. Um, but when Michael passed, my children were seven, six, three and one. And I could not juggle a full time career, carry the weight of my own grief, the weight of my four children's grief and pretend like I could go on the way I did, you know, three weeks before Michael's passing, I couldn't. And so, of course, my heart and my soul, I needed to be home with my children. I wanted to be home with my children. But now these years down the line, you know, my kids are in school. They are, thank goodness, they're doing tremendously. They're happy kids. Um, for the most part, you know, and now I find myself like, wow, you know, I had to give up something I worked so incredibly hard for. Um, and there's so many other secondary losses, you know, the loss of, for many people, you know, then dealing with a loss of income, dealing with a loss of identity, you know, I was Michael's wife and I will always be Michael's wife, but now there's this new part of me. There's this new person that has to be reborn. And that is difficult. Um, it's incredibly overwhelming. But the people who know you well, the people who stay by your side, they support all of these phases and they support 
all of these changes. Um, and that's, those are the people that are sunshine mm. and the people you have to hold on to. So beautifully put. How are your kids doing? You said that they're happy. I mean, you must look at them and see Michael in them. Oh my goodness. It's yes. And it takes my breath away mm. every time. Um, you know, I have three girls and, and one boy. Um, they are now 13, 11, nine and seven. And they had to deal with something at a very young age that um, I wish they didn't. And they were forced to see life in a way that I think I'll always feel as their mother is incredibly unfair for them to experience when they did. But with that being said, my children have such a wisdom to them and a kindness, a compassion. Um, they're incredibly empathetic and um, they really have, you know, just made me so incredibly proud. Um, they're doing wonderfully. They love talking about their daddy. They love hearing stories. You know, I think there's different challenges presented to each of them. You know, my older two were old enough when Michael passed to have really solid memories and have stories. Um, my younger two don't really remember Michael past photographs and stories. And so they all experience their own different types of pain in that regard, but they do an incredible job of lifting each other up and telling stories and going through pictures and videos is really special to them. Um, and I deeply believe in keeping Michael's memory and his spirit around us all the time. Um, I've done that from the beginning, even when it was incredibly painful for me. Um, I do think that's so important for children who are grieving. And I do think it has helped them, you know, all these years um, as they continue to cope with losing their daddy. Mm -hmm. How did you guys meet? Oh, it's my favorite love story. <laughs> um, we technically met on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Um, Michael was your typical fireman bartender. Um, I was actually in college and just by chance, I wound up being invited to, um, to work at the bar where he managed. And I went into bartend and met him and, um, I mistakenly thought that he was, you know, dating somebody else. And um, I really didn't give him the time of day. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we wound up months later, um, you know, this is another part of my story. And uh, I was, like I said, a senior in college. I wound up going back to school. I was upstate New York um, for the spring. And I was a collegiate basketball player. And I was there for my senior year. And I had been really not feeling well for months. And um, in the interim of the first time meeting Michael and fast forward to um, finally really meeting him again, I was diagnosed with um, Hodgkin's lymphoma mm. and I was 21. Um, it was prior to losing Michael, 
one of the most incomprehensible, difficult things, um, as you can imagine, I've ever dealt with. And so that actually brought me home back to Long Island. Um, I was treated at Sloan Kettering Memorial Hospital. And I actually really met Michael um, after the the mishap on the Upper East Side. Um, We met that summer and I was sick. I was really sick. I was going through chemotherapy. a few of my girlfriends, we had all done a Hampton share house out East. And I walked in Memorial Day weekend, almost didn't make it out there because I had just had a treatment and I wasn't feeling great. And he was the first person I saw when I walked into the house. Mm. And I think a lot of people say like, you know, as soon as I saw this person, I knew I was going to marry them. And I always say about Michael, you know, I didn't know per se, that I was going to marry him. But when I saw him, I felt a spark in my soul. Like this man is like going to be a part of me forever. And, you know, you can never imagine now, fast forward all these years later, um, you know, we did it. We had a beautiful home in a beautiful town that you know well. We had four beautiful children. Um, we had great jobs. We had a strong marriage, um, not without its ups and downs. You know, no marriage is perfect. But what I loved about our story is we met so many adversities. You know, um, we started out when I was very sick and my future was very uncertain. And we made it through that. We wound up, you know, getting together, getting married, having our children, buying our homes, having our jobs. And we made it through a very scary illness with our youngest. Um, We made it through a secondary cancer diagnosis for me. And it felt like, you know, after I was diagnosed with breast cancer at 32, it felt like we had conquered it all. You know, it felt like we had made it. Life had given us our challenges. It had certainly served us our share of obstacles. And I thought we made it, you know, we did make it. But then Michael returned to work actually after my second surgery, um, after my bout with breast cancer, um, I was just cleared to lift the children again and was finally feeling healthy and somewhat back to myself. And um, he went back to work and unfortunately um, did not come home from that last tour. Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. Do you get angry? You know, I am also a proponent of therapy. I think that's something that's me too, sister. Yeah. People shy away from talking about it. And um, I don't think we should. I think we should embrace it. I think everybody can use um, therapy for, you know, their own reasons. And if nothing else, just a space to release that which holds you back and that which perhaps makes you angry or makes you sad. And, you know, um, we're social beings. We're not meant to just keep brushing things under the rug and we're not meant to go through things alone. And I think when we take that on and we don't give ourselves a space like therapy, um, it becomes almost impossible to keep navigating 
all of these things that happen in life that are a part of living life. Um, but with that said, back to your question about anger, I do think anger is a healthy emotion. What is unhealthy is what we do with that emotion. Mm -hmm. And if we bottle it and we continue to let it rise and overtake us, that is what is unhealthy. I think not acknowledging the anger can be dangerous. And I have certainly <laughs> had my share of angry days. Um, I'd be lying if I said once in a while, I still don't. But it's what I do with that. You know, if I sit and I just let it take me over, um, I'll, you know, I will not have a good day. I will not be a great mom. I will not be a good friend. But if I find the spaces to release that anger and take that anger and maybe turn it into something positive or something useful, whether it's through exercise, walking, um, you know, art, writing, or getting on my bike and going for a hike. Um, it's if I don't do those things, then the anger becomes dangerous. So I think anger is an important part of a journey in grief. Um, but it again is what we do with that anger that shapes us and shapes our future, you know, moving forward. Mm -hmm. How are you feeling today? Today, I'm having a good day. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I tell my children, I say to them all the time, you know, we don't have control over much in this life. We've learned that firsthand, but we do control how we approach each day. We do control our attitude and we do control our responses to the people and the things around us. And so uh, I always encourage my children to take control you know, if you're feeling sad, that's a big emotion. Let's talk about it. Now, how can we take control of it? How can we make ourselves feel better? And sometimes I need to take my own advice. Yep. <laughs> um, but my children are a beautiful gift to me in that way that having those conversations and helping them navigate, you know, keeps me honest with myself. And like, you know, I had a really bad day yesterday and I could have done that better myself as an adult. Um, so I think it's just this constant reflection and constant honesty with ourselves in, you know, how we should be approaching life and, you know, really accepting what it is that we can control and what we cannot, mm -hmm. you know, and then forward with that. And how's your health? I am, thank goodness, healthy. I'm doing very well. Um, I'm tired, Janice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got through the holidays and... Uh... Yeah, but you know, um, I'm very grateful for my teams at Sloan Kettering Memorial. They're an incredible hospital. I have just been blessed with incredible doctors. Um, and I just, you know, part of my reality is just staying on top of my checkups and making sure that I'm taking care of my body the best I can, you know, exercise and nutrition. Um, and I think also finding emotional and spiritual outlets that help me, you know, decompress um, 
And I think obviously that looks different for everybody, but I think it's really incredibly important for us, um, you know, to find that for ourselves and give ourselves that, you know, that activity or that space or, you know, um, that community, whatever it it may look like for us. Mm -hmm. Now, you have channeled something tragic in your life into something good for others. And I want you to tell me about the foundation in your late husband's name. So the foundation really came out of a need that I felt very deeply to, you know, rewrite Michael's legacy because it felt to me that, you know, you have this incredibly tragic story and it felt that Michael's name was just steeped so deeply in sadness and tragedy. And it was, you know, um, there's no way around that. It is still to this day, but I felt that I wanted his name to be said also with hope and light and love. And so I decided that we needed to do something about it. And the foundation, um, we are a 501c3. We are a nonprofit organization. It is aimed at really focusing on community of first responders, um, people who give back to their communities, who serve their communities. We try to serve them and we endeavor to take care of them in their times of need, whether it might be a overwhelming medical diagnosis, um, a tragedy within their life, um, perhaps outside of the firehouse or police department, um, or, you know, we've also helped military families, Department of Education families. Um, We look to help them maybe in the aftermath of their time of need. And we truly focus on the family unit because I think the only job Michael loved more than the fire department was being a daddy. And so we really try to give families um, a gift of, you know, support, whether that's in the form of an epic family vacation to celebrate, you know, overcoming challenging times, whether it's um, establishing educational funds, which we've done now for a few families for their children uh, in the wake of loss, or whether it's um, helping them make a few mortgage payments. Because as you know, you know, with the fire department, being able to work overtime is a gift for families like us. And um, when you find yourself ill or there's something going on at home and you don't have the opportunity to do that, it can become challenging financially. Um, So we really set out to make a difference in these families' lives. And when we started, you know, I couldn't imagine what it could potentially become. I just knew that I felt compelled to help other people and to make a positive out of this terrible situation that had happened to our family. And I am just so moved by people's response to our foundation and our mission. And I really 
you know, every event that we have, I always make it a point to just stop and look around the room or look around the venue and take it in because everybody is there, of course, to support us in our endeavors, but everybody is there because they were touched by Michael, whether they knew him in life or they heard of his story. Um, they were touched by him. And I find that to be such a gift. Um, I find it so humbling and it just makes me so incredibly proud to have been his wife and to be able to continue a legacy in such a positive light for such a deserving man. Mm. Beautifully said. And you have a big gala coming up, which I'm very excited to take part in. How can we people do. how can people help or how can people attend? Tell me how we can help. So our event coming up is um, on Long Island. It is at the Garden City Hotel. It's at the end of the month on Friday, January 26th. Um, it's from 7 to 11 p.m. We are so incredibly honored to have you on board uh, as our keynote speaker. And um, tickets are sold on our website. Um, it's the Michael R. Davidson Foundation.org. And um, there you could purchase not only entry tickets if you'd like to join us for the night, um, but we also sell raffle tickets online. And the proceeds of this year's gala um, are going to two very deserving, two very special fire department families. Um, the first is the Stokes family. We um, previously helped them. Um, Eddie Stokes is a member of Ladder 38. And we helped them, um, I want to say about a year and a half ago, their son Leo was diagnosed with leukemia. And I am very, very happy to report that Leo is doing wonderfully. Um, he has recovered from his illness. He is, talk about a little ray of sunshine. He's absolutely beautiful and adorable. He is walking sunshine. Um, they are now dealing with another um, illness. Liana Stokes, Eddie's wife, um, was recently diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And so we are working incredibly hard to continue to support them financially now with this, you know, second bout of cancer in their family, which is really so incredibly overwhelming for me to think about what they're going through right now. So I can only do what I can do, um, which is help them to the best of my ability through, through the efforts of the foundation. And secondary to them, we have the Lal family. Dio Lal is a firefighter in Staten Island, and he is undergoing chemotherapy for a very aggressive form of sarcoma um, that he's been dealing with since November of 2022. And it has now traveled to the, the base of his skull. It is in multiple vertebrae. Um, he is a true warrior. Um, he has a beautiful wife and two young children, two young boys. Um, and so we are really rallying for for them as well to try to lift Dio um, through this incredible, difficult, incredibly difficult time. Um, so we are honored to be working very hard for them. Um, we 
are just really thankful that we can do what we can do. And we hope that we'll have um, a large outpour of support, you know, through either the um, attendance at the gala or again, if people are not local and still want to contribute or maybe cannot commit to coming for the night, um, those raffle prizes are available online as well. Mm. I'm very proud of you. Um, it's, you know, it's it's something, t- a testament to you and your spirit uh, to want to help others despite going through, you know, tremendous challenges in your life. Um, and I'm really proud to help you with this and take part in this. I I don't even know what to say uh, because it's just such a an honor and and I f- I feel really grateful to have met you and um, and I'm so inspired by you, Eileen. I really I truly am. Um, what is the thing that you think of Michael when you when you hear his name? What what comes to mind when you think of him? Oh, um, his goofy side. You know, it's. <laughs> It's not a side that many people would get to see, but, um, you know, it's really the the little moments. And, um, you know, he always had this like one face that he would make at me. So, you know, every time I think of him, I, you know, I tend to cry, but I, I make sure I smile and um you know, I'm I'm still talking to him. Just I joke with some people. I say, you know, we're still co-parenting. It's just not traditional. Um <laughs> I I know he's with me. I know he's with the children. And um, I'm just so grateful to have had him for the time that I did. You know, it's very easy to look at all that we did not get and the opportunities in the future that we did not get to fulfill and see through. But, you know, I wake up every day and I know taking care of these children and carrying myself and, you know, growing this foundation um, are all a testament to the love that we shared. And, um, you know, I just, um, I try to stay goofy and keep that goofy side of him alive and in me, in me too. Mm. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you at the event and it's going to be a happy uh, event. I know that. Um, and I, I, I know what you mean when you look in the room and you see all those people that are there for you and Michael and his memory and wanting to help others. It's, it's, I will take that moment in. And um, so I thank you for asking me to be part of it. Thank you so much. God bless you. God bless your family. I can't wait to see you, Eileen. Oh, sounds good. We can't wait either, Janice. Thank you so much. You got it. Thanks again to Eileen for being such a force for good in a time when we need more stories of people helping others. The Michael R. Davidson Foundation was organized in memory of FDNY Lieutenant Michael Davidson, beloved son, brother, husband, and father, who tragically gave his life while serving the city of New York in March of 2018. He was just 37 years old, but this foundation will continue to honor his memory by helping others. The gala takes place January 26th at the Garden City Hotel. And if you would like to find out more or to donate, you can head to michaelrdavidsonfoundation.org. Thank you to all of my listeners. If you have someone you think should make the Dean's List, let me know at Janice Dean on Twitter or Janice Dean FNC on Instagram. Or you can rate this podcast. 
Please subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Thank you.